I'm trying something a little bit different today. I read two memoirs that I did not like. So I'm going to talk about the two books. And then I'm going to end with a David Sedaris essay that I did love so that it's not just all negative, negative. So the first one was Finding Me by Viola Davis. And first, I, before I get into the actual book, I just want to talk about the experience because I told you guys I was going to try to read and listen at the same time. Because like I said, with Green Lights by Matthew McConaughey, everybody told me I had to listen to it, but I didn't. I just read it. And I heard similar things about the Viola Davis book that you had to listen to it. So I tried doing it and my experience was not great. I abandoned the the listening and reading at the same time. And I think for me, when I'm reading, I read pretty fast, but I stop a lot because... I am thinking, or I read something that I just love that I just have to reread. So I go back. And when I'm listening at the same time, you know, the audiobook doesn't know what I'm doing in my head. So it just keeps going. And it's too much work. Not that listening to Viola Davis's voice wasn't enjoyable, but it's the, this, the act of reading and listening at the same time. It just didn't work for me. Okay, let me get into the things that made me stop reading the book. I, I did read most of this book and I just got to a point where I was like, I'm not enjoying this. It's, you know, there's so many amazing books out there that I want to I wanna be inspired and I want to just be obsessed with the book that I'm reading. So I stopped. On page 177, she wrote, no words can describe that one-two combo of luck meeting talent. On page 197, she said, there are no words to describe the stage door. On page 258, she gets the role in the movie Doubt, which is like huge. She says, no words describe these moments of winning the audition lottery. So multiple times here, she says, there are no words to describe. And that is what writing is. We are using words to describe things. This was only three times that I I wrote down, but She does this so many times that I couldn't believe it. Let's see. On page 177, she wrote, I was finally two weeks from graduating from Juilliard. The last two weeks are meant to be the jump off to my my new life. After four years of honing my craft, this was it. All the pain, joy, suffering, and triumphs. And suddenly, dot, 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 exactly two weeks before graduation day, dot, 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 I woke up sick, exclamation point. So here she is telling us with ellipses and exclamation points that this is a very big deal. And this is the opposite of treating your audience like geniuses. And this is what I talked about with Alex DeBranco last week in episode 27, how in his writing, he always treats, he thinks of treating his audience like geniuses. And I do not feel smart when I read this. I feel like she's like shoving down my throat. Like, oh my God, this is such a big deal. Like I was sick. Can you believe it? I was about to graduate. And by the way, she's not like dying. She's just, she just got really sick. So I just, I could do without the ellipses and all the exclamation points. There were so many exclamation points throughout this book. And you guys know how I feel about exclamation points. There is a time and a place. And most of the time, There's no place for them, okay? Most of the time, you don't need the exclamation point. Most of the time, it distracts me and it pulls me out of the writing like it did in this little paragraph. 
um, on page 181, she wrote about getting an abortion. She wrote, the big clots of blood were a constant reminder that I terminated a life. And I absolutely, without question, knew it was a life, dot, 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 which I had traded for my own life. Try dealing with weight of that shit, three exclamation points. Like, okay, here's the thing. The first sentence was pretty powerful. The big clots of blood were a constant reminder that I terminated a life. And I absolutely, without question, knew it was a life, which I had traded for my own life. That would have been great. But then when she says, try dealing with the weight of that shit with three exclamation points, I feel like I've just been pulled out. Like I was in the story and now I'm out of it. Kind of like she's yelling at me. Kind of again, like she's telling me this is a big deal. Um, and, and, and I don't, I just, I don't like the way it makes me feel. I'm not articulating this very well, but so often in things that I read that I don't like, it could be so much better if the writer would just pull, like delete some of the things that they've written. And in this case, if she just did not write that sentence, I would have, I would have liked this part. All right. I'm going to have one more example. This is the, the best example I found of the, of the worst writing. I'm just going to read this to you. There are moments in life that absolutely live up to the hype, like adopting my baby. The love you have for your children, even when they drive you crazy, is everything. Absolute perfection as far as I'm concerned. Okay, that's number one. Number two, getting married. I loved it. I didn't have any stress. That's why I, I had three ceremonies with my husband. Every one of them was the most perfect in my entire life. Winning an Oscar, a Screen Actors Guild Award, some perfect moments. But opening on Broadway on March 28th, 1996, absolutely lived up to the hype. Perfect. It was everything that I dreamed it could be. <laughs> so this paragraph, I learned nothing I, except that she, she was really happy about these things. She said some version of absolute or absolutely three times. She said perfect four times. She described getting married as I loved it. She said lived up to the hype twice. Why is she repeating that twice? Um, so there was a lot of repetition in here that is not the good kind of repetition. And there was a lot of, of words that are, they're just not really like describing anything to me. Like there's nothing in here that like anybody else couldn't have written, you know, except, you know, winning an Oscar and a Screen Actors Guild Award. But describing what it felt like, she just says they're perfect. Absolute perfection. Lives up to the hype. Like <laughs> it just doesn't doesn't mean anything to me. I, this is why I think famous people hire ghostwriters. Like famous people, I mean, lots of people do, but famous people have these amazing stories. Like Viola Davis had an amazing story, but she's just, she's just not an amazing writer. So I read most of this book and then finally I, I had like probably like 80 or so pages left, 70 pages. I don't know. And, um, and I put it away. So so that was Finding Me by Viola Davis. And the other one I read was Norm MacDonald's book called Based on a True Story. Now, I knew that this book, I expected it to be weird and funny because he's a weird and funny guy. He was on SNL. He did um, Weekend Update for many years. And um, I was into it in the beginning. And then I got to page 100, right around page 100, and things took a turn and got like completely absurd. And I closed the book. And I was like, oh man, I think I, I don't know if I can keep reading this. And then I talked to Sam about it 
And he was like, just stop reading it. And I was like, well, no, like I, I liked parts of the beginning and you know, I'm sure there's still things that I can learn from it, but I sat with it for a few days and I was like, not looking forward to reading as much. Um, so I decided to put, put this one away. There were some things that I liked that I want to share with you. There was actually one chapter that was phenomenal and I'm going to read most of it to you, but hold on, I'll get to that. Let me start with the introduction. He wrote, and as I look at her and wonder who we were last night, I come up with a title for my book. I'll call it based on a true story because it comes to me that there's no way of telling a true story. I mean, a really true one because of memory. It's just no good. It's like when a guy is telling a story and he's way off and you know he is because the whole story is about you, but he's changing it all around, leaving out important parts and making up others from whole cloth, doing whatever he has to do to turn the dead stuff of life into something worth telling. And you'd correct him, but the thing is, you're not sure you remember it 100% accurate, accurately yourself. It turns out your memory isn't the precise quartz stenographer you think it is, getting every word down just so. It's more like the sketch artist at the back of the courtroom who is doing his level best to capture images that no longer are. So it won't be a true story. It'll be based on a true story, like every story I've ever told. Okay, this was really good writing. And this, I thought, was such a great reminder that it's okay to have a bad memory and write your story. Norm MacDonald is saying he doesn't have a good memory and that's okay. Yeah, I, he is a good writer. He, he's a very good writer. Uh, it's just, okay, we'll get to it. We'll get to it. So in this book, Norm is on a journey to Vegas, so an actual journey where he's going from place to place. He's got to go to Vegas. And that made me think about in the book Wild by Cheryl Strayed. She is on the journey across the Pacific Crest Trail. She's hiking the Pacific Crest Trail. I really like when there's an actual journey happening. You're going from place to place. For him, the he's doing a bunch of drugs. Apparently he was an alcoholic and he gambled a lot and he did a bunch of drugs. And the drugs are a vehicle for him to remember his past. So basically like at the end of a chapter, he'll take a drag of something and then the next chapter will go back in time. So I thought that was pretty clever and you know, a little bit silly, but I, I'm, I'm on board at this point. So then in chapter three, we go back to childhood and he calls this one his, my first five years. So, you know, we learn about him as a little kid and it's cute. And then in chapter four, we're at six, six years old to eight years old. And this is what I wanted to read to you. I'm going to read most of this chapter because I thought it was really good. And I'll, I'll skip around a tiny bit, but mostly I'll, I'll read the whole thing. Okay, here we go. One day when I was six years old, I came to know a truth, a hard truth that would stay with me for the rest of my life. I was in the farmhouse alone, and I happened to look out the screen door where I saw our cat. She was crouching close to the ground and utterly still, except for her tail, which switched like a metronome side to side. I could see the cat's muscles roiling beneath her blue-gray fur. Her eyes shone fire upon a mouse that sat roughly a foot in front of her. Neither animal moved, and I didn't either, but I could feel my heart beating. The standoff ended when the mouse finally moved, and the cat caught it with a swift, clawless swat. The mouse stopped. After a brief moment of stillness, the mouse moved again. The cat met it with another swipe, and once again the mouse stopped. This happened many times. Then the mouse began to back up slowly, and the cat went into a deep crouch, and then a mighty pounce. The mouse was trapped between the cat's two paws. It struggled to get away, but its efforts were futile, and the cat brought its face close to the mouse, who, in a desperate bid for freedom, bit the cat's nose. The cat's face momentarily recoiled in astonishment. Then the cat's green eyes flashed black like the wing of a crow, and her teeth tore into the mouse, and I could hear the tiny bones breaking as the cat's neck swung from side to side until the mouth was still and limp, 
but the cat's neck continued to swing. Then the cat slung the dead mouse into the short hay and strolled away. This last moment was what surprised and frightened me the most. This whole endeavor had nothing to do with food. And this is when I learned that hard scrabble truth. There is a difference between what a thing is and what it appears to be. A thing can appear to be content and happy as it lies with you so close that you feel its purr in your belly. And if you don't look through the screen door and out onto the world, you might never realize that the thing you think you know and love is another more dangerous thing altogether. And then I'm going to jump ahead a little bit. That was when I became very interested in magic. A magician can make you believe in appearances even if they are impossible. And lucky for me, old Jack was a magician. Um, old Jack was like a family friend. Also, he was the only one of the old men who paid me any attention. Once I showed my interest in magic, he began to perform his sorcery for me regularly. He could make a penny vanish from his hand and then find it in my ear moments later. He could turn a penny to a nickel and a nickel to a quarter until you couldn't understand why he wasn't the richest man alive. Old Jack could do it all. His tricks amazed me, but I knew they weren't real, even at that young age, because I had seen the cat and the mouse. So I asked Old Jack to teach me, but he refused. Can't do that, Sprite. A magician never tells his secrets. But when he said that, it was always with a winking sort of smile, and I understood that one day he would tell me. Two years passed, and as I grew older, I was eager to become a man. On the first Sunday of every month, just before the sun rose, all the men in town would convene at our home to go hunting with my father and my older brother. I wanted to hunt more than anything else, but I was not allowed. In my father's eyes, I wasn't old enough and couldn't be trusted with a gun in the woods, even though I could already hit a can off a fence post with a twenty-two nine times out of ten. It wasn't fair, but I didn't make the rules, so I had to stay home with the women and old Jack. Old Jack never went hunting, not once, not ever. And the men teased him without mercy, but old Jack, he'd just smile and say, Wish I could, boys, but I'm getting behind on my work. But everyone knew that old Jack was never behind when it came to work. One Sunday, I asked old Jack straight out why he wouldn't go hunting. His answer made me wish I hadn't. He said that when he was young, he was the best shot in the county, and he could shoot a squirrel's eye out at 40 feet. And so when he was drafted into the war, they made him a sniper. He told me that he had killed and killed for four years, and he said that kind of killing changes a man. He knew they never would have made him kill all those men if he had not learned to shoot so well as a boy. He said that when he returned to Canada, he felt apart from the other men and felt closer to little children who hadn't yet learned to hate. And I asked old Jack if he figured he could still shoot a squirrel's eye out at 40 feet. They'll know, old Jack said. I love squirrels now. I've even trained one. I feed him corn right from my hand and he climbs onto my shoulder. Now that's got to be kept a secret, Sprite, because if another man found that out, I'm afraid that he would kill my squirrel and dry it on the porch till it was ready to eat. I knew old Jack was right about that. The men in our town loved to eat squirrel. Where is the squirrel, old Jack? He lives in the tool shed with me, falls asleep right on my belly. I guess I'm the only fella on this blessed earth who has a squirrel for a pet. Will you show him to me, old Jack? I can't do that, Sprite. He might get spooked and bite you. Maybe I'll just teach you a magic trick instead. So old Jack finally showed me how to produce a nickel from behind a boy's ear, and once I knew how it was done, once I knew the trick for what it really was, I became angry. I made old Jack promise that from now on he would only perform his magic tricks and never tell me the truth behind them. Things were changing fast for me. The night of my eighth birthday was a night like any other. I was sitting listening to the men when Angus McGregor started talking about the war. I could tell Angus had uncorked the jug early that day. He looked drunk as a boiled owl, and his story didn't make much sense. He said how much he hated the Krauts, and that he once shot a surrendering soldier in the back, and he told us he wasn't sorry for it neither. None of the men said anything for a while after that, and finally my father broke the silence. I'll get us another round of beers. When I looked over at old Jack, there was a tear in his eye. I'd never seen that before, a tear in a man's eye. He got up and quietly left the house, and I chased after him. When I found him, he was sitting under the blighted maple tree. You sad, old Jack? You thinking about the war, I asked. 
Old Jack just sat still for the longest time, like I wasn't even there. It was like he couldn't hear or see me, like he was hearing and seeing different things. So I just stood there, and after a good long time, Old Jack looked up and seemed surprised that I was in front of him. Well, hello, Sprite, he said. What's the matter? You look kind of down. I just didn't like Angus McGregor's story, that's all. Say, Sprite, I know what'll lift your spirits. I know the very thing. How would you like to see a trained squirrel? I was very excited. But you said you could never show him to me, Old Jack. I haven't got the money to get you a true birthday present, Sprite. This'll have to do. So we walked down the lane together toward the North 40. The beneficent moon hung low and shone bright, leading us to the shed. When we arrived there, I was so excited I couldn't wait. I pushed the door open wide and rushed inside, looking for that squirrel, but I couldn't find him. I realized my mistake, that he'd only come out for old Jack, so I glanced back at the open door, where old Jack stood, but his back was to me now, and it was blocking out the light of the moon. I suddenly remembered that I'd read somewhere how the light of the moon was just an illusion, and the moon was only a cold, cold stone. I watched old Jack look from side to side before he turned his gaze on me, and his eyes flashed black like the wing of a crow. He closed the door, and the inside of the shed went black. Then I heard the bolt. I forget what happened next. So I finished reading that, and I was just like, holy shit. That was terrifying. And then I turned the page, and it says, chapter 5, 8 years old to 13 years old. And then underneath it just says, I forget. And I was like, jeez. I know that was a really long passage for me to share with you, but I had to because I thought it was so well written and so unexpected. And I don't know if you guys noticed this, but in the beginning when he's talking about the cat killing the mouse, he says, then the cat's green eyes flashed black like the wing of a crow and her teeth tore into the mouse. And then at the very end, he says, I watched old Jack look from side to side before he turned his gaze on me, and his eyes flashed black like the wing of a crow. So he's not being so explicit in telling us exactly what old Jack is about to do, but because he used that exact verbiage, eyes flashed black like the wing of a crow, you know something really bad is about to happen. Um, I don't know what happened. I'm like guessing that he molested him and who knows? I mean, he lived through it, but it was, it took my breath away when I read this. And um, the, the mirroring that happened at the beginning of the chapter, at the end of the chapter, reminded me of something I talked about in Wild by Cheryl Strayed when she uses the same exact verbiage earlier in the chapter when she's walking alone on the trail and feeling good. And then at the end, after she goes through this horrible experience, she's walking alone on the trail and she's terrified. And then she like runs for her life. How powerful it is when you use the mirroring in a story. So again, this is just something that I, I don't know how I'm going to do this, but I think it's really important to have this mirroring and figure out where the verbiage is so specific that it will be easy for the reader to be like, oh yeah, this was said before and, and make that connection. So after this is when things started to take a turn, we get to chapter 17. So we're getting closer. We're on page 88 and, um, he's, he's starting to work at SNL and 
he shares something that he said to Sarah Silverman. So Sarah Silverman was an, an actor on SNL and apparently he had a crush on her. I don't know if he actually had a crush on her, but he says, um, he says something to her and then he served a restraining order from Sarah Silverman. And then after that, he hires a hitman to kill Colin Quinn, another actor in SNL, because he sees Colin and Sarah kissing. And then the hitman that he hires turns out to be a cop. And Norm MacDonald goes to jail. And then he has a whole chapter about his time in prison. He's there for four months. And then he gets out and he goes right back to SNL. Oh, and while he's in there, he like has sex with some dude. Um, and then he goes right back to SNL. And so at this point, I'm just like, what am I reading? Like, what's real? I just read this insanely powerful, dark chapter about his childhood. And now, like, everything is so absurd that I'm like, well, what what was the, like, is the childhood stuff uh, made up too? Like, wh- what? So there then they're like i was reading these stories from him and i'm like i'm so confused i'm like which of this is true what's not i hated not knowing the difference and that was the end of norm mcdonald's based on a true story so let's end with david sedaris um there's a book i got called holidays on ice which is a collection of essays that you know are surrounding Christmas time ish, I guess. Um, and I was like trying to hold off reading them until like around Christmas time. But I was just like, I can't, I need some David Sedaris in my life. So I read the first essay called Santa land diaries. Um, and I wanted to share it with you. Now I know this is not technically memoir. He is an essayist, but David Sedaris's writing is personal and it's funny and it's everything that I want my writing to be. So we're going to talk about it. Okay. And also who knows, like maybe my memoir could be like one long story, but if you wanted to, you could read each chapter as its own standalone essay. Like that could be cool. I don't know if I could pull that off, but it's an idea. Okay. So in the Santa land diaries, he is writing about his experience he had as when he worked as an elf at the mall one year. Let me get right to it on page 12. Um, this woman is like giving them their costumes and she's like lecturing people. And she says, and don't tell me I don't wear, I don't wear underpants. I'm a dancer. You're not a dancer. If you were a real dancer, you wouldn't be here. You're an elf and you're going to wear panties like an elf. So when I worked at a bar in Santa Monica, this is many years ago before I met Sam. Um, and I was like pursuing acting. I told my boss I was an actor and he laughed at my fit in my face. And he said, if you were a real actor, you wouldn't be here. (laughs) And I remember I was like really equally mad, but also like he was really funny. And now I can say he was also right. (laughs) I was not a real actor, Um, but it just, it got me thinking about these grand visions that we have for ourselves. And it sounds like David Sedaris had a grand vision for himself too. And yet, you know, he's working as an elf and it's like trying to like, get closer to our dreams and feeling like we're, we're able to touch them, but really not being anywhere close at all. Okay. <laughs> okay. This is really funny. I was at magic window for 15 minutes before a man approached me and said, you look so fucking stupid. I have to admit that he had a point, but still I wanted to say that at least I get paid to look stupid, that he gives it away for free, but I can't say things like that because I'm supposed to be Mary. So instead I said, 
Thank you. Thank you. As if I had misunderstood and thought he had said, you look terrific. Thank you. He was a brawny wise guy wearing a vinyl jacket and carrying a bag from Radio Shack. I should have said real loud, sorry, man, I don't date other guys. So I love the use of repetition here. And I know I talked before about like bad repetition, like this is good repetition. And it somehow gets funnier and funnier each time he writes, thank you, in quotes with an exclamation point. And he does it again later. Let me, let me show you the other example. She said, I'm going to have you fired. I had two people say that to me today. I'm going to have you fired. Go ahead, be my guest. I'm wearing a green velvet costume. It doesn't get any worse than this. Who do these people think they are? I'm going to have you fired. And I wanted to lean over and say, I'm going to have you killed. (laughs) I didn't realize that with repetition, that it can create sarcasm the more you say it. So every time he writes here, I'm going to have you fired. I just feel it like dripping with sarcasm and it's so funny. <clears throat> okay, here he's talking about um, the picture, you know, the, the, the classic picture with Santa. He writes, the parents had planned to send the photos to relatives and place them in scrapbooks. They waited in line for over an hour and are not about to give up so easily. Tonight, I saw a woman slap and shake her sobbing daughter yelling, God damn it, Rachel, get on that man's lap and smile or I'll give you something to cry about. And then right after that, he moves on to something else. So what I noticed about this is there's no reaction to his observations. Like instead of saying like, oh, he saw this woman slap and shake her sobbing daughter yelling this thing. He doesn't say like, oh, here's how I feel about that. Here's my thoughts on that. He just moves on. So there's no reaction to his observations. And here's another thing I noticed. So often David Sedaris's reaction is the observation. So let me explain this a little bit more. I recently listened to an interview with him on Armchair Expert. Um, He's been on the show four times, I think. So this was the most recent one, the the fourth one. And anytime Dax, the host, Dax Shepard, said anything, David Sedaris would react with a story. So I've been trying to think lately how I can react to something someone said with a story of my own that relates to what they've just said. Because it's so much more interesting than just being like, yeah, totally. (laughs) So in a recent newsletter... I was talking about my sister. She did something that annoyed me. She, we, we, we don't allow glass by the pool and we were sitting by the pool and we, we had glass and I, it just, it slipped my mind and I like didn't notice that everybody was having glass until I did notice. And she was like, well, I knew it was a rule, but Char didn't say anything. So I wasn't going to say anything. And I was writing about this and I wanted to be like, she sucks. Um, but that's just telling you my feelings, which is like, who cares? Like, whatever. Instead of saying that, I responded to that by telling another story about my sister. And I said how they recently, her and my family recently went on a a trip and they were at the airport and my sister kept cutting the line. Like who does that? She kept cutting the line and my mom was like, what are you doing? And she would just be like urgently under her breath, like, shh, just move, let's go. And doing that, reacting to my sister's comment with another story about my sister is way more compelling and believable because why should you just take my word on something? You shouldn't. Okay. Um, this is it. This is the last, the, the ending of the essay, which I briefly mentioned on the previous podcast when I was talking about how it's okay to just end with your story and not end with how you feel about the story. 
So um, let me just read you the end of the essay. This is his last shift. He's working um, and it's on Christmas Eve. My plane was due to leave at eight o'clock and I stayed until the last moment, figuring the time it would take to get to the airport. It was with reservation that I reported to the manager, telling her I had to leave. She was at a cash register, screaming at a customer. She was, in fact, calling this customer a bitch. I touched her arm and said, I have to go now. She laid her hand on my shoulder, squeezed it gently, and continued her conversation, saying, don't tell the store president I called you a bitch. Tell him I called you a fucking bitch, because that's exactly what you are. Now get out of my sight before I do something we both regret. That's it. That's the ending. There's no final thoughts. There's no value to impart. There's no, here's what I learned from being an elf in the mall. There's no reflection on his experience about the whole thing. He just ends it. When I read this, I had two thoughts at the same time. One, I was like, holy shit, that was an awesome ending. And two, I was like, oh my God, I can't believe he just ended it where the story ended instead of telling us everything that he learned and all the lessons and all that. So let me read this ending to you one more time. I touched her arm and said, I have to go now. She laid her hand on my shoulder, squeezed it gently and continued her conversation saying, don't tell the store president I called you a bitch. Tell him I called you a fucking bitch because that's exactly what you are. Now get out of my sight before I do something we both regret. <laughs>